0: Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 12 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about.
1: On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Sam Winston about his lifelong fascination with type. Platforms are amazing. They're these tiny, tiny little symbols that are just are little black blobs, and it means cat. For me, it's my blowing elephants. Here's
0: Debbie Millman I come from a world of stories and upon my imagination, I float. I have sailed across a sea of words to ask if you will come away with me. Who could resist an invitation like that? It's the beginning of A Child of Books, a collaboration between Oliver Jeffers and Sam Winston. It's a picture book for children, but it's also a tour de force of Sam Winston's brilliant typographic images in which objects are built from the texts of classic children's stories. Text and typography are central to Sam Winston's art, which goes beyond books to sculpture, collage, drawing, performance, and even poetry. Sam Winston, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Wow, what a gracious introduction, thank you.
0: Sam, I read that your favorite word is window. Why?
1: Well, it's kind of a weird one. We did a workshop years ago where we we asked people to come and contribute their favorite word. And there was two types of people, basically. People that chose the word because of its structure and form and then people that chose the word because of what the word meant. So it was either they were focusing medium or message. And I chose, like, message. I, I love windows as a metaphor for things that you look through and you get insight through them. and So I was looking at maybe the meaning of what the actual word is. And then, um, yeah, there's the other option of choosing the word for how it sounds and behaves in the mouth. And what, yeah.
0: What were some of the, do you have any onomat- memories onomat- of on, some of the...
1: Onomatopoeia seemed to be a very popular one for mm. people. They just... They, the word
0: itself the, or the, wor- the, the word, actual it, no, way it the works? The word itself.
1: And then everyone else tended to go for sausages and I don't know whether it was the sound or whether it was they liked sausages, but it was one of the most reoccurring
0: words. I was not expecting that <laughs> uh, as an yeah, answer. Why not? I also read that you're obsessed with interjections, the ums and ahs that creep into conversations.
1: Yeah, uh, I, yeah, it goes back to the same the same idea as in language is not a clean form of communication, and I'm I'm sort of obsessed in any way the noises that are introduced into the kind of type of. The way that we communicate. So, an army is a, a fascinating thing in the way that mark making on the page, you know, there's the letter form, but then there's a kind of like the smudge of the pencil and other such things. Those are
0: my favorite things smudges and all of the little human aspects. Mm. All this being said, Sam Winston, your official bio states that you think that words shouldn't be taken too seriously. Absolutely, absolutely. (laughs) So this sort of flies in the face of this whole part of the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, I I think... uh Oh, where would you go with that? It's like there's a lot of words out there that are being taken very seriously at the moment in many different spheres. And I think I've had um, my most enjoyable conversations tend to be when people connect from a much more heartfelt space and when people get too tight about the particulars of language, especially words like space or when people are so certain that they're right, as in like and, and they use language to entrench their view in that. And uh, I, I'm not sure that's why we invented language.
0: That's it, interesting. i'm I'm always amazed at how certain people can be about things that have no way of being proven. And I guess that's the definition of faith, but yeah. even in that, I am struck by how certain people can be about things that are at the very nature of our humanity uncertain.
1: Mm. And I think one of the words, both in the UK and the US at the moment, is this word. You know, it's words like freedom, right? So everyone's got their definition of it. And to be honest, I think everyone kind of thinks generally that's a good thing. But how that's executed, and then the language we use to enshrine that, and so that's what I think. When I say we, they shouldn't be taken too seriously. Is I think the investment that people put in the words sometimes can kind of contract and close down dialogues and.
0: I guess so. I'm not sure I believe you, that you don't take words too seriously. I think you take words very seriously and you respect them a great deal. I wish that everybody that didn't take words seriously took them as less seriously as you do. That makes sense. Let's talk a little bit about your background. You grew up in Totnes, Devon, Mm. in the UK. And I understand you struggled with dyslexia. And I read that you would watch little black marks on the page turn into pictures in your mind and then become a whole world. How did that happen how did How did you create this?
1: It happened in a kind of generally like most kids that have a real hard time reading. They're kind of frustrated and angry and most probably like really bashing away at trying to get to somewhere that seems so fluid and easy for other people. so it happened with a lot of frustration, and I think that's one of the the main things in When I'm in a teaching environment, one of the main things that interests me is that usually most interesting things come from problems. They don't necessarily come from skill sets. Skill sets are things that you already know, so there isn't so much learning going on in there. Whereas if you approach something and you're not entirely sure what you're doing about it, then you've got to learn. So in my adult life, I've become a big advocate of problems. I I really like problems. I think there's a lot of creativity to be had in questions, not answers.
0: When you are first diagnosed with dyslexia, is there ever a time in your life where you become no longer dyslexic? dyslexic.
1: No, I, um, I can't really, you know, I'm not super versed in in what dyslexia is. I, I think, very loosely speaking, dyslexia is a very different way of approaching languages and whether that's a, a mathematical language or a written language mine was partly to do with numbers um, and when i was about eight or nine i was falling behind in english and then my parents got a tutor and then they kind of the tutor pointed out that i was just like overcompensating in different ways and then that led to I think some quite fundamental personality traits. So a lot of my work has this obsessive quality. So there's a massive investment of time and energy. And that is most probably a motif that I picked up quite young. I was learning how to deal with language. And that involved maybe three or four times amount more legwork for me to do to get to the same points. So that carried over into my creative process.
0: You have clear recollections of being read to as a child, and I read that one of your most primal early memories is of your mom reading to you in the afternoon and how fascinated you were by Dr. Seuss, Where the Wild Things Are, and The Little Prince. Did you have a favorite among those books?
1: I think I had a favourite experience, which is this kind of like the intermediate, it's a liminal phase where you begin to fall asleep listening to literature. Well, that's kind of so comfort. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's one of the things as a kid. It's like it's. I think it's a seminal thing for many people. It's this thing where we kind of transition out of the very active sensual world into a world of like just words, then either a voice, and then that voice slowly taking you, and then and then you're off and then that kind of liminal experience of falling asleep to storytelling that that's the memory now whether what story that was affiliated to I'm not so sure
0: <laughs> that's so interesting given how much of your work feels like it's tapping into the subconscious
1: yeah very much so and I think the way I'd describe it is that there's a shoreline between the conscious and, and unconscious. And one of my favorite metaphors for this was I was doing a project at the Oxford University Press and they've got a room there. This is where they write the dictionary or define the dictionary, sorry. And in this room, they've got all the words that aren't in dictionary are kept. So it's kind of like this... Wow, yeah, are they all it, in
0: little boxes? Yes,
1: they, yeah. They, obviously, there'll now be a database where all the words that aren't in the dictionary are kept. But they showed me a room and it was all these little... Filing cabinets. Isn't that
0: everything. amazing? Beautiful. It's so let's, beautiful. Let's take out the word
1: and today. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. We can't use it. And we don't know what it is. Oh,
0: my God. That's incredible.
1: Yeah. And that for me is, for if I was trying to describe this shoreline, that, that for me is a really good description of what this shoreline is like. So, yeah.
0: You've said that the picture books of your childhood were an intermediate space for you. And then they were half pictures and half words. Mm. And I'm wondering if that also is part of the part conscious part subconscious.
1: You know, how on earth as a species we invented writing It's kind of like it's the most incredible thing. This kind of transition from a visual form into an abstract symbol. And for me, that's that's the most compelling thing. It's kind of like there must have been a shift in what happens in our brains, right? So it's this thing where we go from the picture to the symbol and it's like, wow, this represents an ox or something like that. And you think, wow, that's quite amazing.
0: I I love the idea of... The marking or the naming of something being completely arbitrary right, and how we can remake those marks or remake those words just by the sheer will of it
1: which to take back to your your previous question, which is kind of like you know don't take words so seriously, okay, so wh- why don't we just bin a lot of these words that we tend to have wars about, and then why don't we just kind of go, what does that mean, and for me. Creating environments where that dialogue happens is kind of the core of my practice.
0: Absolutely. I think that if we weren't so invested and committed to notions of belief,
1: Mm.
0: which are all based on constructs that we create, we wouldn't have war. Right. Right. It's all we're we're fighting about constructs.
1: Yeah. And this is where language gets really tricky. It's like suddenly if you start using certain words, you're going to push other people's buttons. And other, OK, so what are the environments where people can somehow communicate what's really heartfelt without closing down the dialogue between the other person? Because it's like, I'm not into that. I'm not into I'm not a and it's usually a club. I'm not a vegetarian or I'm not a liberal or I'm not whatever you want to call it. And that's where symbols come in, that's where visual arts come in, that's where, uh, you know. Brands, religion, yeah, all yeah, of it, yeah, everything, yeah. So everything. That, yeah, yeah.
0: I read that when you were growing up, you found it incredibly difficult to write and that the format you felt was really restrictive. And that's when you began to use typography. Mm. So, talk about that. How did you come to understand that there were other ways of being able to? put marks on paper through typography.
1: Sure. I can only tell you a story of what I think happened when I was at this age where I was kind of acquiring writing. And the story would be, I just remember having to kind of do all these letter forms at school and just going C, 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 A, 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 A. And um, I think one of the things that, I remember reading later on was that they teach... I'm not severely dyslexic, but they teach severely dyslexic kids how to remember the alphabet by sculpting it in clay so it goes through the senses of the touch. So suddenly it's like, okay, now I've got this kind of different way, a new sensory experience of what the A means because I couldn't understand it as an abstract symbol. And I think most people that spend a long time acquiring an alphabet, a language, if it's difficult, then you do focus on the medium, which is paper and pencil, and letter form, and the space between the words, because you're having to digest it so much more.
0: You've said that you believe that there are different kinds of literacy. What do you mean by that?
1: You have people that are incredibly literate in the physical world, whether that's through dance or theater, or incredibly literate with their voice, I see. or incredibly literate with... So, I'm being very flexible with that. That's the cool. Definition. I love that. I love Literature. it. Yeah.
0: You were state schooled until you were 11 years old, and then because your parents were worried that you wouldn't pass, they sent you to a Rudolf Steiner school where education has a heavy emphasis on self expression. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is that like a Montessori school? Ex- yeah, is, okay. It's
1: similar in its outlook, yeah. And uh, by that time, through institutional education, I had developed a bit of a Just I go blank when I have to do a test. And it was nothing to do with the dyslexic. It was just the the reinforced sort of like, you're not good at this. And that's just learned behavior. So by the time it got to my 11 pluses, because they were going to send me to a grammar, they thought he's going to go blank in this. So we're going to have to put him through a different system. And that affected both myself and my brother amazingly positively. Actually, the removal of the form of like structure gave us a lot of Fortunately, we found independent, self-motivated learning uh, suitable, and, and we took to it like fish like water. And I'm not saying it's for everyone, but it really worked for me and my brother.
0: You said that it was at that time that you found that you could go one of two ways in that system. And I was really fascinated by this. You said that you could either become very disciplined or you could become very free-spirited and drift off into the cosmos. <laughs> you came, became very disciplined. Sure. How did that happen?
1: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no,
0: <idea>. no fair. <laughs> no, I'll,
1: I'll 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 tell you a story, but I'll make up. Yeah, I'll make up. You're something. gonna make something up for yeah. me. Um, I think it's a mix. I think you've got to be really lucky. Partly it's parenting, because it was just the parenting was just like, okay, you need to be motivated, and you could see that. I had been taught some sort of like, okay, if you do the long game, you get a reward rather than go for kind of instantaneous crap. You know, you run away and you don't do the homework or something like that. And I think um, once the boundaries were taken off, I felt supported enough in other ways to be able to kind of create that structure. And I think that's what's really interesting about the learning environment is I'm not so interested in teaching in in a way where you sit down and give this prescriptive formula. It's more about creating an environment where people can start building their own things and you're just giving the support systems for it. That's my definition of education is that you're not actually delivering. You're just creating structures where people can make a scaffold. So
0: it's sort of the the conduit.
1: Yeah. Or you the scaffolding in which which people feel protected that they can make. And and a mix between good parenting and, and the Steiner system really worked for me too. And when I went back into say the BA and the kind of the art school environment, it was just familiar by that point and I didn't have any trouble transitioning into kind of self initiated projects, authorship, all these things that are now prevalent in my practice.
0: Isn't it amazing what the influence, a good positive teacher or parent can have on a person mm. my first year in college I was so lonely so depressed I was so
1: yeah was years, it was grim. it was
0: <laughs> it, I, I just was I was floating on a sea of nothingness and it wasn't until my second year of college where I encountered a professor that actually, I don't know if she really thought I was smart, but she acted like she thought I was smart. Sure. And I suddenly felt smart. Yeah, yeah. And being smart in her eyes felt so good that that's all I wanted to be, was smart for Dr. Yeah, Riguero Alam, my, my, my professor. I just wanted to be smart for her. Yeah, fantastic. And, and it changed my life. Yeah. Um, after grade school, you decided to go to the University of the Arts. And you said this about choosing design as a discipline, and I'm going to quote you here, Sam. You said, I picked design because I thought I had to make a career out of what I was studying, which is where I began to write in the way that I write now. I can write partially in text, but by learning about format, by learning about typefaces, by learning about composition, I then became knowledgeable in the language of language. And Sam, I did love I that, that term you did. <laughs> you said the language of language. And I, I just find that really beautiful. You also have the best definition of design I've ever come across. You've said design teaches you to study the voice rather than what to say.
1: Wow. Wow. I have no recollection of any of these words.
0: (laughs) You probably said them a long time ago, but fortunately they still live on the internet. Design teaches you to study the voice rather than what to say. And that is my primary issue with design, Mm
1: -hmm. because
0: I think that designers should have something to say and then be able to study that voice as we're saying
1: it. I think even my dissertation was, should advertising have a moral or social responsibility or something like that? Because I was looking at all these people that were amazing communicators, and I was just waiting for the syllabus on, right, so what are we communicating, which never appeared, right? So mm-hmm. no one ever approaches because it's such a big, sticky, massive, complicated, political, um, social subject. It's called life, right? right? So so it's just easier to kind of go on about the page format. A little bit, right? That's
0: why I hate when people talk about design as problem solving. I think Brian Collins says we should be problem makers, not problem solvers.
1: Yeah. (laughs) So when I go back on next week, back to the UK, I'll, I'll have this conversation with the third years at UAL, and I'll say, well, what does fourth year look like? And then I'll go, I don't know, I I must probably get a job. And then it's like, well, what kind of job are you going to get? I'm going to work in a bar. Okay, so you're going to work in a bar initially, but you're planning to get what kind of job? Well, I'll get anything that I want. And then that dialogue, it becomes, you know, it's personal because suddenly your social economic background appears in your work because you can't avoid that. And you've got two choices. You, you kind of get messy because it does get messy because that's life or you just avoid it and you just keep talking about the format of the page. And I, I think one of my decisions was to really talk about like what creatives do have a massive role in society. As in, like it's it's enormous, and if it's if it goes unaddressed, then you only you only then work in an industry that's been pre-designed for you, so you're only adding to the status quo, and whatever's wrong with the status quo becomes what you inherit and the format that you work.
0: And then you're never really addressing.
1: You're just inheriting, Yeah. Right? And that's true for that's true for so many things. And I think I, I'm paraphrasing a quote that's really pertinent that I've that's in my head at the moment is that you don't inherit the planet from your parents; you borrow it from your children and it's just kind of like there's too many things that really kind of need looking into right now that can't we can't just inherit all the old systems cuz there's a lot of problems with those
0: how much of your practice now is divided between commercial work and non-commercial work
1: i'm so in the habit of authoring my own stuff and then finding either a thing at the end whether that's someone so when I do children's books, I'm working in the publishing industry. When I do art, I'm working in a market. And that's been quite interesting, the difference between what how a market behaves and how an industry behaves. In what way? Well, in a marketplace, it's smaller and you make a thing and you take it to someone and go, do you like my thing? And they go, yes. And you go, would you like to buy it? In an industry, you're working with teams of hundreds of people with lead-ins and execution times that happen over months and years and you kind of watch it so one's like a massive tanker <laughs> kind of like you sort of roughly point it in one direction and hope it ends up there and then the market industry is a lot more smaller and intimate and you have more control but less less scope maybe as in like you'll only make 10 of something called 20 or something
0: when I was talking to Brian Koppelman recently on the show, he talked about creating the show Billions, and he and his writing partner actually created the entire show, created the script, and then went to go right. sell it. And he found that, I think, quite gratifying in that it was entirely his vision. Whoever was buying it knew what they were getting. Sure, And I think that that's interesting about this sort of marketplace mentality is that whenever, if somebody is interested in buying that thing that you're selling, mm. they know what it is that they're getting. It's a matter of finding the right audience though. And I yeah. think that's the the biggest issue for the marketplace scenario.
1: Yeah, and I think you also have to have enough resources to produce something in a bubble, in a vacuum, with no support and no infrastructure. So you've got to have your studio set up, you've got to have assistants, and you've got to be able to invest a lot of time and energy into making something. And then at the end, the resources come, but only at the end.
0: Let's talk about some of your art projects. In 2004, you created a piece titled Full Folded Dictionary. You presented the refolded innards of 21 books of the Oxford English Dictionary on display, which essentially transformed them from everyday books into incredibly sculptural landscapes. Um, What was the motivation for this and what kind of sculptures did you make? And am I describing this right?
1: Yeah, it's basically an altered book and it touches on a lot of what we've just been speaking about, this idea that language has a shoreline and then I'm I'm looking at the book as an object and transferring this very sort of symbolic image of language, i.e. dictionary, and transferring that into a very solid kind of tangible object that can only be dealt with in the physical plane. And, yeah, that reference is growing up and learning about language and looking at the language of language. So I'm just trying to move out of just the lens of content, and I'm looking at form. So I'm looking at the medium and, and then playing with the medium of the book itself, the physical structure.
0: In 2011, you created Birthday, which is a two-part piece. You did two drawings, each representing the number of deaths and births in one waking day. And you did this by visualizing the data with circles. So you did 70,000 black circles on white paper and 100,000 white circles on black paper. That's a lot of circles, Sam. Sure. How and why?
1: It's at a kind of cross point in a lot of my practice. On a simple level, it's a bit of data visualization. But again, it's the shift from looking at the medium to the message. So on a really basic level, I'm taking a pencil and using a circle to draw a circle. But metaphorically speaking, you're looking at how many people are born, you know, by the time we've had this conversation, there's, you know, that many more people on and off the planet. And it kind of seems to be just such an incomprehensible thing for our tiny little human brains to do. So it's using the story of me doing that as a metaphor for us not being able to comprehend kind of the, the scale that life happens at. And I wanted to, I wanted to just use my body to kind of like know what 100,000 was or know what 150,000 was and that that's become a motif is using performance as a way to kind of i guess be a metaphor for like the scale of the individual versus this massive eternal scale.
0: I read a recent article wherein you talked about how you've been really enjoying being more physical in creating work. And you said that there is something about the physicality of making an artwork that makes you own it. The experience of using the body, hand and eye, means that you become very absorbed in the work itself, so much so that at times it can be hard to distinguish the two. Mm. So how is this different from how you've worked in the past, this physicality?
1: Maybe when I first left college and I was working in my practice, I was thinking, okay, well, I'll, I'll work. I'm happy in InDesign and I'll work in type, sort of Adobe packages and all these things, and and that is still true. But there's something that when you correspond via the screen, when you when you uh, socialise via the screen, when you do your everything shopping via, via the screen. Then I began to say, well, some of the freedom I've got to get off the screen is actually the choice of how I produce the work. And the work was, again, that's a problem for me. And then so how do I answer that problem? And then I started using not just craft and handmade, but just working out how to kind of make, like, you know, really juicy making where you don't actually, it's not an intellectual exercise that's very kind of cerebral. It's the type of exercise where you kind of really in the body and it's all about just getting the feel of how the paper behaves, and just you know the the softness of lead on on a page or, or clay or any of those sensual things. So um, that movement towards the physical is probably in response, as culturally we've moved so much more to the digital.
0: How long did it take you to draw one hundred and seventy thousand circles?
1: So 170,000 circles, I'd most probably kind of I'd do a couple of hours a day and then, and then you do the Monday, Tuesday and by Wednesday you would be able to put down five or six hours solid and then if you do that for a couple of weeks then you can put in quite a lot of time. But it's like anything, it's like if you're exercising and you're trying to get fit, you sort of start off small and you slowly build up. So when I'm doing a long durational work where I'm using a lot of physical kind of craft, I couldn't just say, right, I'm going to turn that on. It will build up over like a few months.
0: Did you get really good at making circles?
1: (laughs) Uh... I got really good at being able to kind of like watch what I'm doing and then kind of play with this thing where you go into automation so that one of the terms is flow activity, right? So if your flow activity is this thing where you get so absorbed that you disappear, that's the most romantic side of it. And then the other side of it is that you're drawing a circle thinking, mm, maybe I'll have a cheese panini for lunch. And, <laughs> you, you know, do you know you're, you're miles away and you're in this completely other other space. And then... For that particular one, because it was around birth and death, I just kept on bringing my head back to, wow, whilst I've been daydreaming about a cheese panini, 25 people that I don't know have just kind of left. And that's kind of, that, that for me as a metaphor was, was exactly what the project was about, is kind of how sometimes we can tune into really kind of profound thoughts and then other times we're with our... Vitamin water and whatever else is in the world.
0: Do you do anything else while you're doing that type of flow work? Do you listen to music? Do you watch no. television? You just think?
1: Ultimately I kind of I'd say most of my work is pretty selfish. So I use I use that as a situation to explore the theme that I'm working on.
0: When you created the piece, you said that you weren't sure whether you had a choice working with the themes of life and death. Why is that?
1: I've been fortunate enough to be given enough. Resources, whether that's financial or studio or whatever, for me to be able to kind of uh, make fairly whatever I want. And then if I'm given space and I feel like I'm in a good environment, then I kind of, do, you know, it's like when you're on holiday, you do think, well, what am I doing? What am I going to do for the next five years, ten years, and things like that? And you do end up on much bigger questions. And 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 then the other thing, the transition from that particular project is I got so much from that process of circle making that... We took it into the South Bank Centre and we made it a participatory thing. And um, I was totally, totally floored by how powerful it became. For other people. And to the point where, after day two of the project, and we'd had about 9,000 contributions, we almost pulled the plug because it was just so strong. Because people were drawing circles and then talking about who they were drawing the circle for. And going from, it's exactly what we're talking at the beginning. You're going from like looking at the words to like designing a la- typeface or designing a medium. And then suddenly you're listening to these people and you're hearing these life stories and you're like, wow, this is this is the transition from it being just a designed element and people are putting such deep and profound content in it. It just really was, like, really powerful. It's
0: representing life and living.
1: For me, because I had made the constructs of this, it's not a ritual, but the constructs of this thing, I thought, okay, I could see through it. But then once you start seeing people invest in it, suddenly it becomes really respectful. Now I've got this drawing in the studio and I'm just like, it's kind of a very, very poignant thing for lots of people. So when we did it a second time in Bristol, we began to kind of like um, record the dialogues from these people. Um, Yeah.
0: Let's talk about another past project before we talk about your latest effort. Your piece, Romeo and Juliet, found you reorganizing every word of Shakespeare's famous play. You cut every word out of the play and reorganized them into three categories. Why don't you take the description from here?
1: Okay. Good handover. Um, That was
0: slick, right?
1: No, I like it. Um, So I I basically was, again, it's kind of, I'm really fascinating because this project was done at a time when data visualization was only beginning to, you know, the advent of technology suddenly gave massive amounts of data it became a lot more fluid. It came off the pages, it started moving onto screens and people began writing code and finding new patterns in it. And I'm interested in all of that, but I was, as a creative, it's like, well, what's my particular spin on it? So I began to do it through the lens of the handmade, again using this kind of very fallible human body to kind of work through it. So I basically made three different categories, passion, rage and solace. So I'd read through the text and I would say, okay, this sentence is about the lovers, this sentence is about conflict, and this is, say, the priest offering reconciliation or something. And I made these kind of big clumps of words where each one was divided. And then that was the building blocks in which I made three collage drawings. Um, And the collage drawings were made out of all the words from passion, all the words from rage, and all the words from solace.
0: What made you decide to choose those three words in particular?
1: At the same time as doing uh, the Passion Marriage Solace project, I was probably about five years in of kind of doing a sitting meditation. And one of the exercises in the sitting meditation is just observing um, something called Vedna. So generally in our sense field, we have three responses, attraction, aversion, indifference. Attraction, oh, I like it, I want to know more, this is interesting. Aversion, okay, I'm bored, I just need to go somewhere else. Indifference, what? They're the three responses. And someone, I don't know who said, but I was just like, is it really that basic? Do we really just go towards push away or ignore? I can't find another category at the moment. So that's so that's fascinating, I, yeah. Sam. So, and that's not at an intellectual level, that's at a precognitive level, as in like there's some processing unit that's kind of pushing, pulling, or ignoring. So, I, and that's how I developed the passion, rage, and solace categories for the Romeo and Juliet.
0: So um, before we talk about A Child of Books, you said in a recent interview that the freedom that you have now in your work comes from your profession and not from your practice. And go on to state that your practice is full of process and systems, but your profession is self-generated and completely subjective. One of the things that you talked about in relation to your practice was the notion of being groundless. Mm. And that you you've said that it's very hard to operate from a groundless place, but that's where the most honest and interesting work comes from and I'm wondering if that had something to do with the comment about profession versus practice. How do you tolerate the groundlessness?
1: Yeah, there's loads of ways into that. I'd say in the school environment, what I tend to see when when you're in a learning environment, someone will bring you a piece of work and and what they're really bringing you isn't the work they're just bringing you doubt. <sighs> Oh. So they're just like, I'm not sure about this. And then what normally goes through is like, okay, so it's a series of questions to figure out whether they actually are really doubting it or whether they actually think, No, it's good and I need a stroke and can you can we carry on? And that's the groundless th- thing. Uh, like from that quote that you read about like the freedom came from my profession. I'm not entirely sure what profession I was referring to, I am guess I, I'm referring to that my profession is self-generated. So I guess that's where that space is. So the reason that I am so interested in process is because that's how I work through this idea of the groundless space to make in. So I'll make up some sort of narrative, like, okay, I'm going to do a book. That for me is a narrative. And then I'll fill my days for six months, five years or something with it. And then at the end of it, it might not even be a book, but I needed that story for me to make. And then what comes out might be an exhibition or it might be something completely different, but yeah.
0: How do you decide every day what you want to work on?
1: Yeah, that's that's really hard. (laughs) <laughs> no really yeah yeah. You really have, when that.
0: you're self-generating work it's, you have to decide every day you have to make your own structure every day
1: well going back to attraction, aversion, indifference right? so I kind of I think sometimes sometimes I'll make a choice on aversion as in like I'm really tired of email correspondence so from that response of aversion I'll shut down the machine and that forces me to go and work in on paper or the attraction thing is like I'm totally fascinated and in love with a particular idea that will take me somewhere
0: Let's talk about your latest book, A Child of Books, which you created with Oliver Jeffers, one of the most creative people on the planet. How did you two meet? Boy, would I have loved to have been a fly on the wall for that.
1: We've got a mutual friend, a guy called Sam Somerskills, and he spotted a certain synergy that we hadn't, well, we didn't know each other, and he said, oh, you guys should just meet. And Oliver emailed and said, in a very Oliver way, why don't we do something? We should do an exhibition. And I (laughs) was like, what that means but yeah cool and then we met in london and we just sat down and um it felt like we were kind of like there was a lot of similar energy as in i could see that there was like 50 different ideas in his head and he was jumping into one and then kind of pausing one and going over to this other spot and i was doing the same so it was kind of like okay there's there's all of that there and and we were immediately really trusting As in, we immediately knew we didn't need to say, oh, we should do something. We just knew that we were like, let's make a space and stuff will come up and stuff will be made.
0: I saw an incredible picture of the two of you. You were sitting at what looks like a park on a park bench and table. The table looks like you covered it with some sort of plastic to, I guess, prevent it from being painted on. And the two of you were working face to face. It mm. looked like they were paints and computers. Yeah. You were on a computer, you were yeah. on a laptop, he mm. was doing some kind of painting. Mm. Where was that? Was that in the process of making it? It was book? in a
1: residency in rural Georgia. And I think one of the things that we were addressing, not about the book, but the, one of the things we were addressing was about work. Because we both, not insanely busy, but almost insanely busy. And we both knew that we wanted a space. So the main conversations was less about what we're going to do, but more about the structure. And we said, let's go to the middle of nowhere. So we found a residency in rural Georgia and we went there and then we filled it full of pictures.
0: And was that where the idea of A Child of Books first was born? Or did you go to rural Georgia, which is a really difficult thing to say? (laughs) Luckily,
1: we (laughs) haven't been drinking vodka.
0: (laughs) Did you go with the idea that you wanted to make this book?
1: We had started showing each other what we were interested in. And i showed Oliver a book that I'd done previously. And one of the sentences in the poem was, I'm a child of books. And um, we just said, well, who's that? And then that was, yeah, we just began talking about who she was.
0: And how would you describe the plot of this wonderful book to our listeners that might not be aware of it yet?
1: Uh, it's... Um, in in a very simple way, it's basically a love letter to literature and it has two characters, a very certain, intelligent, enthusiastic reader, which is this girl called The Child of Books, and a reluctant reader, which is a very timid boy. And they meet and she takes him on this journey and the journey is through this landscape of language.
0: The book Debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations. Thank you very much. You've been winning a lot of awards, a lot of accolades. Well, well, well deserved. I read an interview where an Oliver stated that ultimately this book is an ode to literature mm-hmm. and that you both felt that journeying back through classic literature as a way to explore imagination was a worthwhile thing. How did you decide what text to include from other books?
1: Yeah, this is a really long conversation, as in, I'll do it succinctly, of course. um, (laughs) Thank you. It was, um, on one level, it was about classic literature. So we didn't want to get into a dialogue about, oh, this isn't a classic, that is a classic. So we were taking it from maybe our childhoods and where we grew up, which kind of gives it a European, sort of European, Western focus. But then when it gets translated into 17 other territories, then it has to become a much broader conversation, which became fascinating because in simple Chinese or in Japanese or in French or in Russian, which is the territories that the book is being translated, the French are like, can we have The Little Prince? And then the the Greek are like, can we have Jason and the Argonauts? And we're like, of course, because it's not necessarily, we're not talking about a definitive list of classic books. We're talking about just the power of stories from certain eras. One of the things I was talking to about Oliver, which I don't know whether I'm I should be talking about it, but one of the things that I felt interesting is in in the current political climate, I'd love to do a lot of Middle Eastern stories and a lot of stories from many different parts from the world, world literature. It had to start initially from classic books from where we were, because that's the idea and that's how it made sense to an audience. But now that the idea is established, I'd love to broaden it out.
0: How hard or or not hard, has it been to translate the book graphically. So all of Oliver's illustrations of the little boy, the little girl, the actual tangible books Mm. can be replicated without any issue at all, I imagine. But the text, your text, is built letter by letter. There are... Tsunami type waves, there are extraordinary monsters. I mean, all of these things are crafted letter by letter. Mm. I'm assuming that all of of those are
1: translated. Yeah. 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 How, so, so when the when the agent looked at the, the the early drafts, the first thing he said was like, "This will never, ever, ever be translated <laughs> into another language, just because of the logistics." Right. And weirdly, it's worked in in not in our favour, but I think there's so many people that are the message of literature being or imagination being free and something for all. So many publishers have just said, "Oh, we want to do this," and. I hand over master files and then I've written a 40-page style guide on how to do this and then the editor gives a, us a list of Mexican fairy tales and or lullabies and then we okay that and then they work in my master files and then we sign off the work afterwards. But... Child of Books has got 40 classic children's books in it. It's it includes in includes
0: Alice in like, Wonderland and Gulliver's Travels. I mean, it's amazing. Such it, an amazing book.
1: And that is now translated into 17 languages at present count. It just won the um, Bologna Ragazzi, which is this award where they also sell lots of foreign edition rights. So it probably going into a lot of other territories. I think that's over like 500 translations of stories. So for me there's the book but then there's the story of what the book is doing which is is equally fascinating because that was the idea so I come from a world of stories and it's just beautiful to watch all of these um publishers take this up and kind of spread the stories in a even broader way.
0: Absolutely. There's one image where the little boy and the little girl are on a planet and you see space and the beautiful A's that they're saying, ah, oh, and the A's are stars. And that's really what this book is. It's a book for the entire, the entire universe, really, for everybody to be able to appreciate and and have awe about. Let's talk about the process of how you and Oliver worked. I'm so fascinated by how the two of you put this book together. I read that you would build something up in a type layer and then Oliver would work with it in pen and then you would take it back into the computer and then Oliver would then go back and add touches. Is this really how you did it? It was just like pass the potato?
1: Yeah, it was. uh, (laughs) Genuinely. Which is why we had to work in the same space for a while. So, Initially, we're trying to define the content, which is a much more subtle thing. And you can't, you know, when you kind of show someone something and they go, mm, yeah, right, you know, you can't have that subtlety. So we, once we defined that, then the format involved us basically sending back multiple layered files in which if I needed a tweak in the pen and ink drawing, he would have to do it and send it to me. And if he needed a tweak in the InDesign file or something like that, I'd have to do it. And um, I don't know how many email threads we have. The,
0: your files of the way you build individual pieces of type must be masterworks.
1: They're kind of bonkers, yeah. <laughs> you could call them masterworks, you could call them mad. Uh, I guess that was one of my things. It's kind of like it was born from being very patient around all sorts of like craft and, and the handmade and making. And then taking some of those ideas and taking it into letterform. Because letterforms are amazing. They're these tiny, tiny little symbols that just a little black blobs and it means cat. You know, cat <laughs> what? Someone, someone explain that to me again? And I think, I think that combined with that they're also visual things, it's just, yeah, it's just, for me, it's mind-blowing. I love
0: it. In working digitally, you've said that digital techniques can't always capture spontaneity. Does that impact how you work or the way you're working now? Because your work seems highly spontaneous.
1: Digital's a funny one. I was thinking about it this morning, and I think it's more like the tendency of how we behave. So I tend to behave digitally in a sport. in a, just the habit of Instagram and all these other different mediums. That habit creates a sense of speed. And then certain mediums have to slow you down. And the obvious ones are drawing. But then when I see someone doing a bit of coding, you've kind of got to go deep. You can't go speed on that. You've kind of really got to dig away at it. And I think when someone does really nice design, you can't cheat. You can't get filters to do it. You can't get you know, bells and whistles and tweaks. It usually goes back to the same thing. So I get a bit annoyed when people say craft is just the handmade because it's not. So it's more about how you treat the technology and if you go deep with it and if you kind of go into it, then you can make things that do look spontaneous, but yeah.
0: You mentioned how your editor said that the book would be impossible to translate. I also believe that he said that this was the most difficult to reproduce book in history.
1: Uh, So our our agent, Paul, he said it was going to be a nightmare to translate. And then the editor or the art director is Deirdre. Deirdre McDermott. yeah, 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 yeah. And she was like well done boys but it was from a very loving space
0: oh absolutely I, I wouldn't have taken it any other way <laughs> are you and Oliver working on another project together or have any plans to
1: not allowed to say Okay. That that means yes and yay.
0: (laughs) Sam, the last question I want to ask you is about some of your favorite tunes, so to speak. I understand that they are as follows. A 10-hour loop of the Skype ringtone you found on YouTube, a police car alarm in Hackney, London, and the sound of a cement mixer near your house actually mixing cement. What on earth did I say? (laughs) So what is it about these sounds that appeals
1: to you so much? Where do you... God, you've done your research.
0: Ten hours of Skype?
1: (laughs) This is weird, right? If you Google it. (laughs) One is ten hours of Skype. One is the boot-up sound of either a Mac or Windows, I can't remember which, but slowed over 24 hours. Wow. It's really good.
0: Sounds like something Eno would do.
1: Yeah, and it just goes... Ooh, and, but over much, It's quite, quite euphoric, actually. Yeah, it sounds great. And then the car alarm thing was just... I was riding to the studio in, in Hackney, and there was this kind of oh, a car alarm. And then I looked around, I couldn't see where the car alarm... And then this raster had on his sound system a car alarm, and he was just kind of really into the sound of the car alarm. And I was just like wow, that's someone that listens. And I'm not trying to be obtuse or arty or kind of pretentious. I just think, um, yeah, if you look at type quite a lot, you can get really excited by a full stop.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Sam, I want to finish this show with a statement you made about consumption and art. You said, Consumption in our culture far outweighs the creation of it. So, don't read about it, write about it, don't buy it, Make it. And try and avoid getting others stuck in the trap of consumption. Always stay on the side of inspiration and creation, both in yourself and others. Sam Winston, thank you for being on Design Matters today. And thank you for all of your creations and all of your inspiration.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: To learn more about Sam Winston, go to his amazing website, samwinston.com. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack.